continue in this series on preaching from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to uh, talk about a couple of things. Now, we titled this, along with the summer in the Beatitudes, the Great Reversal, because Jesus was taking things. The last six weeks have been, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus flips it over on its head, right? This starts three weeks that are not really reversals. They have a different approach to them. Jesus walks in and and talks about them in a way that is not flipping it over as much as he kind of clarifies what's the real point underneath in here in this law and in our practice that we can understand. Now, if I'm not careful, we could talk about things, we could talk about them from Jesus' cultural context And then you could say, oh, well, almsgiving is not a big thing that we talk about here because that's what we're going to talk about today, giving to the poor. We don't have some of these same contexts, fine. But what I think is we can cross the bridge to our scenario. So I want to tell you a brief story. I was in Frisco, it was about three and a half weeks ago, when I was just starting to research and prep for this discussion today. And I'm driving out of Walmart, and I'm going up to the stoplight out on, out on the, the highway there, and there is a median strip, and there's a guy standing in the median strip. And he's got a sign, it's about, big, about this big or so, that's pretty easy to read. It's got three words on it. You might have seen them, actually. It says, hungry, broke, traveling. That's all it says. Now, as I'm driving up, I'm thinking to myself, okay, is the light going to change? Is the light going to change? No. You know, because you've been here. Then it's getting awkward, getting awkward, getting, and the light is not going to change. Now I've got to pull up next to this person, and you know exactly what I'm experiencing. And I have two thoughts that immediately go into my brain. First of all, I pull up to this light often, and I'm never awkward when there's not a person standing in the median. Okay. Second of all, I can be way closer than this with no glass between me and the person, and I'm not awkward if I'm sitting at Red Buffalo for a coffee. So is it just simple proximity? No. What in the world is going on here? Why am I experiencing this awkwardness? What's happening? Now, just so that you know how ridiculously I overanalyze things, I think about this all the way across the damn road, and all, you know, I'm thinking about it for 25 minutes, and I've still processed it more since then, because I start asking these questions. First of all, simple data. I have three points of data. Hungry, broke, traveling. I know nothing else about this person. No other information, none of their story, none of the what does this mean. I've seen them there long enough since then with the same sign that I'm wondering how much traveling they're actually doing, to be really honest with you. But I have nothing else of any other kind of a relationship with this. And what it dawned on me about halfway across the damn road was, there's two critical pieces of this. First of all, there's an ask. It's not a declared ask. The sign doesn't say need $20. The sign just implies an ask right? And the other part of it is, there's no relationship that makes this ask seem appropriate to me. As you know, if you've ever had children, you are a $20 bill dispenser to your children, right? Through their life. They just are asking for $20 bills. I give them $20 bills just walking around. With this person, there's no agreement here. There's no relationship. 
There's no sense of, how does this work? So I'm thinking, wow, that is very interesting. Then I go to the next step where I'm like, okay, we call this, this is an aspect of what we call social justice, a discussion about justice. And I ask myself the question, what about this is just on any level? Where does justice enter? In my mind, justice is when you actually bring some kind of a correction that moves into chaos and brings things back to a normal order, like things now work. Is this justice? Second of all, I'm asking myself, is this even righteousness? Is this even right? Whatever's going on, whatever I just did, because as I, you know, as I pulled up to the light and I'm waiting, I kind of give him that little, <laughs> you know, that weird look, right? I don't roll the window down, praise Jesus, the light turns green and I drive. So what, did I do anything right in that circumstance? And then the third thing, because of this whole sermon series that we've been in, where Jesus is taking data from the law, he's taking the practices of what people have been in that have been marginalized, like being poor in spirit or like being uh, you know, persecuted for your righteousness or whatever else. Jesus is recalibrating all of this, and what he's doing is he's trying to say, we're getting to redemption here, people. The point of the law is not just to have standards that are nice ways to live. The point of the law is to actually have a reference point that is not related to you. It's related to God. He's the standard, not you, not that person, but God. And Jesus is recalibrating the whole time. And ultimately, redemption is the outcome. And redemption goes beyond justice. Justice is just simply bringing us back to square one, to ground zero. Redemption starts reversing the engines and going back into the chaos and saying we're actually sustainably somehow going to move against the chaos so that actually justice is less and less necessary in that circumstance. So what was redemptive about what I did? Now, you can judge me. You won't judge me as hard as I judge myself because I was like, I had no idea what I was doing there. Now, Jesus is going to give us some data here and we're going to learn a few things that will help us through and then we're going to talk about this a little bit more. The setup for this, as I was mentioning, is this greater context. But remember that the ethics of what Jesus is talking about is always part of the equation. He's not saying oh, I just want you to feel good about yourself, or oh, I just want you to, you know, pray and talk to God about it. He's literally, you are making ethical decisions, and I'm going to help you with that. But what he does all along the way, most of the time, is change what they had believed was appropriate behavior, and he makes it harder. If you remember, it's almost always in the last six statements it was, you've heard it this way, but I say unto you, and he always ratchets it up several notches to where it's harder. That's a clue to us. Because maybe redemptive thinking has the potential to be way harder. And it does. Not just as simple as, oh, did I murder that person or not? But he's also saying the law is legit because it's a reference against the nature and character of God. And you keep thinking that way. 
uh, last week. Slide five there if you can, Anne. Let's put that one up. I know I have it out of order. This was the end of Jim's, Jim's sermon last week. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word means complete. It means absolutely fulfilled. It means holy, set apart. It's an impossible word, and Jesus knew that. He knew that. Because God is the standard. And none of us are ever going to accomplish living up to God as the standard. That's not going to happen. But what he's also trying to highlight is we're not lowering the standard to fit the lowest common denominator down here somewhere. The standard stays at perfect, and the rest of us make ethical decisions in relationship to that. Thankfully, Back in verse 20, I think it was. No, 20 is the discussion about the Pharisees. But in 17 of, of chapter, he says, hey, I'm here to fulfill. Thank you, Ann. Don't think that I came to abolish all this. I came to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills. But that doesn't mean we just ignore. And in fact, he says in verse 20, the Pharisees are a human reference point for you, but I'm going to tell you that this may actually be way harder than what the Pharisees do. And that will come out in this passage right here. And ultimately, in the next three topics, so this is, these are core elements of Jewish religion and piety. One of them is giving alms to the poor. Another one is prayer. And another one is fasting. And he's going to take these three sections and he's going to tell us about He's going to warn us against being hypocrites. Now, what I described to you out in uh, Frisco a little while ago has definitely got some hypocrisy in it. I acknowledge it flat out. I bet there's times where you experience the same thing in your life. There's other aspects, but definitely hypocrisy comes up. Here's what I want to do. I want to read this passage then, so we're going to go to that next slide, 7, and and it gives us what Jesus says here, then we'll break it down. He says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's an intro statement that applies to the next two topics as well. So when you get to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. You hear several common things in there. Reward is part of it. Secrecy is an issue. Hypocrisy is an issue, right? That's what he's really talking about. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, at the very front, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Righteousness is not a bad word. He's not saying, oh, don't behave like that. These are very admirable behaviors. So what he's not trying to do is say, oh, there's better ways that you can do things than giving your alms to the poor. That is not what he's trying to say at all. Nor will he say that about prayer or fasting. These are good things to do. You should do them, in essence, is what he's saying. But what is happening in the background as you're doing them. One of the authors, I like the way he put it, he said, are, are you doing this in such a way that you basically prostitute your giving 
by expecting something else from it. That's a thought. Next, he says this. If you do this, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here's an interesting thing. Reward is clearly promised. So the reward itself is not the problem. Like, oh, you should do these things and there'd be no reward to it at all. That's not the problem. The problem is what our reward is for which we settle instead of what God has in mind. But the reward, again, is not the issue. Another thing, when you give to the needy, clearly implied, not if or should you, but no, implied, as a disciple, as my follower, you will give to the needy. So yes, go ahead and do it. And when you give, now this is an interesting thing in his context. The Greco-Roman culture did not value as a virtuous thing to give money to someone else. That was not a valued thing. There were people who would do it often for political reasons where they would say, okay, I align with this person, I sponsor this person because I think it will benefit me in the long run or it makes me look good, that kind of a thing. So more in line with what he's arguing against here. But it wasn't like common in the ancient Near East world that everybody was giving to the poor. But in Israel, unlike the rest of the places, it was a common thing that people would sit in places and beg. In fact, if you read some of the history, a lot of the Romans hated coming to Israel because of all the beggars that were everywhere. Which is pretty interesting. But they didn't want that around. The Jews knew that was part of the deal. It was always the people who had no other way to survive. People who were blind, people who could not walk, who had serious infirmities. They were the ones who were begging. And by the way, it was very common that they set up, the, as he mentions, the synagogues near the temple, near the other religious shrines, because people coming would perhaps have a motivation to give alms Maybe because others saw and patted them on the back. Maybe because God would favor them. We can't figure all of that out for sure. But this was a common thing. So giving was part of their equation, as it is with us. Our experience, though, our equation is very different. After the first sermon through this, I had five different people come up to me and say, I just saw a guy out on the street the other day. He's got three dogs. He's got like a boom box sitting out there. He's got all this stuff. What is he doing out there begging for money? We have a very different experience. That would never have happened in Jesus' culture, but it happens in ours. So we have to ask questions related to our own experience. The next thing he says is this. Don't announce it with trumpets. This is, there's all kinds of wonderings about what this meant. Was it a literal trumpet blowing? Or was it metaphorical, like don't toot your own horn, pat yourself on the back? The most likely one that seems to me that in the synagogues and in the temple, they had giving places when you walked into the entrances. They called them shofar chests because they were shaped like a trumpet. There was a small thing at the top, an opening at the top, and then it filled out at the bottom. More, much more like a, a trumpet. And of course, that was for the, the kind of not so <laughs> appropriately intended people who would maybe drop coins in and then say, oh no, give me that back. I don't know. But it's, it, it was a one-way street to put the money in those trumpets. And maybe that's what it's in reference to. We don't know. Sometimes there's discussions about actual trumpets. They definitely blew trumpets during the fasts. 
That was definitely part of the equation. But nonetheless, we know what the, the idea is here. And the idea here is that you're doing it with, like, you're going to need shoulder surgery from patting yourself on the back after doing it, right? That's the Another thing he says is this. I tell you this, they have received their reward in full. That is an accounting term. The bill is square. If you get your reward from other people, then in effect, God says, we're all good. We're all square. You've gotten yours. One of the authors, I love the way he put this. He said, this has now gone from giving to buying. Wanting praise from others, these people would very willingly pay any high price to receive that praise. Interesting exchange. And the left-hand, right-hand thing was usually used in their context to talk about gossip. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and that way you avoid gossiping. But in this case, Jesus co-ops it and uses it in this discussion. Not The secrecy is really the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis here is the reward of the Father. The process by which the Father makes decisions based on rewards. And so honestly, you've got to ask yourself the question, which, which reward will you settle for? I mean, the immediate reward would be, I give something here, you give me a bat, pat on the back, I feel good about myself, and then I go on. That's the immediate, that's short term. Are you interested in what the Father has in mind? Now, the thing that, the place where I hear here in our culture where we, especially in the religious Christian culture, is we mess this up and we say, oh, if you give, it's like you're planting a seed and then God is going to raise it up and he's going to give you uh, the house you want and the new car that you want and he's going to bless you in this way and bless you in that way. Fine, I suppose that might even be part of the exchange. Is that what you want, really? Would you settle for that? Because that's what this passage says. Then the other effect, of course, that's very obvious here is the hypocrisy. And you have to say, wow, there is something more going on. Now let me tell you, there's two other passages in Matthew that discuss this option and this issue. I guess it should say it that way. One of them is in chapter 19. You've heard of the rich young ruler. So you rewind the tape on that story. Guy comes to Jesus, he's got great capacity and wealth, he's got skills and gifts. He says to Jesus, I want to follow you as a disciple. And Jesus says, great, you need to obey the law. The guy says, which ones? Jesus starts through the standard list. He says, I kept all those. Jesus never argues against that, by the way. It may have been true. But then he says, so what am I still lacking? And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your wealth, give it to the needy, and then come follow me. And you know what happens. That's the deal breaker. That's where, no, that's too big of a deal. Now, I don't know how complicated all of that was. It sounds very simple in that sentence. But I can tell you, the guy had a preset notion that I will do all of these things to follow Jesus. I'll even follow all those laws. But what I won't do is give at that level. 
It's not going to happen. The other place where we get some insight into this picture is in chapter 23, when Jesus is having a conversation. And the way it's set up is his disciples and the crowds are there, and Jesus is addressing the crowds, but he's talking about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are standing right there. (laughs) I mean, so this is a courageous thing. And Jesus says, hey, so you have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They're here to be a part of your life. They have authority in your life. They bring the scripture to you. They bring life from God to you. But do not behave the way that they behave because here's what they do. When they do things that are very pious and righteous, they do them to be seen by others and to have their horn blown out in the streets. It's almost the exact same sentence as this. And they get that, but that is hypocrisy. Jesus uses the exact word. They're hypocrites. They have one thing going on, but they have another set of motives in the background. So this is complicated. It's complicated. It's not easy. I get that. In the process, I asked Jude Mitchell, who runs, or you know, she helps in our coordinate our benevolence committee, who are amazing people who meet on a weekly basis, talk through case by case of real people with real situations, and they ask themselves the question: not just how do we provide social justice or how do we just do some kind of a good deed, but what would be redemptive in this case? I'm so grateful that's true about our church. So I said, well, how do you guys make decisions based on that? And she told me about a book, you might have heard, Toxic Charity. It's comparable to another book that um, is called When Helping Hurts. And it's got some ideas about how do we make decisions that aren't counterproductive in this whole thing. And there's a list of principles that our Benevolence Committee reviews regularly, and I'm very glad about that. And can you put up principle number one there? The Oath for Compassionate Charity. I'm going to ask you this question question right there. Does compassion trump redemption in your model? In our society, compassion way trumps redemption. Compassion is like the final decider whether this person is a good person or not. I do not believe that's what the message of the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. But principle number one, listen closely to those you seek to help. That means you actually have to get in a conversation. You have to ask questions. You have to engage. You don't just help without the data. Number two, principle two, never do for the poor what they can do for themselves. Often we're like, well, I've got a, here, here, I can give you this. Maybe that's not what they need at all or even want. Principle number three, limit your one-way giving to true emergencies. One-way giving, also known as clean gives or no-strings-attached gives, limit those to honest to goodness. This is subjective based on your evaluation, not theirs. What is a real emergency? Limit a one-way clean give to those circumstances. Principle number four, empower the poor. Through employment, lending, investing in businesses, bestowing grants sparingly so that you reinforce 
good behavior in effect achievements be a part of a sustainable model not a quick fix model principle number five these are great subordinate your self-interest to the needs of the people being served that's exactly what this passage says exactly if this is about you feeling good about yourselves as americans somehow we've gone into this model where why do people give things well we'll we'll entice them to give because it makes them feel good about themselves or they feel so pitiful for this other person that they i mean these are terrible motives from which to give they're not productive they're definitely not redemptive i doubt they're even just if you want to know the truth so make sure your self-interests are in the right place and then the final one which is by far the most important do no harm. Do no harm. So I'll end with this. Uh, last week, <laughs> I'm pulling up to the stoplight. This is sound familiar. I should quit going to stoplights. So I'm pulling up to the stoplight out in front of City Market, right where the big sign is for the movie theater, and there's a guy in the median. I giggled. Because I'm like, okay, I get it. I, I get it, God. I get what's going on. He has a little sign that's about this big. And it's been folded up like 20 times and put in a pocket untold times. So when he has it folded out and pulling it, it has two words on it that I believe I can read. The top one says, please. The bottom one says, I'm pretty convinced, think. Please think. Well, I'm like, what? That's, that's interesting. Please think. That's actually good advice. Please. So I pull up next to the guy. Thankfully, the light was red, and I, didn't, I actually mean that at this point because I want to ask the question, does your sign say, please think? And he says to me, well, I'm a good southern boy. My mama raised me right, and she told me, if you're going to ask somebody for something, you always say, please, and what's the other word? Thanks. So the sign actually said, please think, but I couldn't tell it. So I say to him, you know, you may want to put think on that sign because it was very intriguing to me that you would put please think on your sign. And he said, that really would be unusual. Now what do I do? Now what? I had, because of this preparation and because of some other thoughts and whatever, I had prepped a week or and a half or so ago and put a little stack of business cards in my, in my office, or inside my truck. And they're church DCC business cards. They have the church's phone number and address and all the data. It doesn't have my personal name and my personal number on it. But I flipped over on the back and I wrote down the hours and the days when the food bank is open. I had done this ahead of time. And then I also said, contact Jude, no last name. That is, I'm trying to think this through, right? At the church office. And so I handed him this card and I said, look, right up the hill here, I work at this church. We have a food bank with meat and all kinds of things. Be happy to give you a box of food, no strings attached. And if you would be interested in a conversation about some more potential help we have a group of people that literally work with people we call them our benevolence committee 
And you could be connected to them if you're interested. And he said, thank you. And then the light turned green. Actually, it had been green for a second. The car behind me is getting a little nervous. But so I drove off and I went up the hill. Now, did I do that one right? I, you know, was there some justice in it? I think so. Was there righteousness, rightness in it? I think so. Was it redemptive? I don't know. Did it have potential for redemptive? In my evaluation, I think it's got more potential for redemptive. Was it the best I could do? Here's the truth. If I ever get to a place where I think that I've got that whole equation solved, that's the fail. And this entire sermon is telling us, keep wrestling with what these things really mean. Keep wrestling with the fact that God is the standard, not you or the guy down the street. Keep wrestling with the fact as to whether this is actually accomplishing redemption. Do that in community. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Read books. Learn things. And this to actually do right. And it may be way harder than the law. Way harder. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to you for all the gifts that you've bestowed upon us. And uh, we have a responsibility, a stewardship responsibility there. And we have responsibility to the people who are in our world. Give us insight. Give us wisdom. Give us direction through each other. May we work on these things together. Learn from each other. Make mistakes and then do better the next time. May we repent when we really butcher it, because sometimes we will. And that even relates here. I repent for all the times that I have done good and given to others because I thought it would help me somehow, make me feel good. I repent of that. Give us your love and your grace, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the band to come up. We are going to receive an offering today. I'm expecting all kinds of great things. I'm only messing with you. Don't totally mess with you. Uh, we, as a church, try to use a method that doesn't do a lot of blowing of horns. You'll never see signs of dedicated things that are all to make a big deal about people and their giving. And we just ask. But we also make the commitment to you that we will use that well for kingdom work. And uh, give as God leads you. And then afterwards, we'll enjoy communion together. Be my vision, Lord of my heart. All else to me, save that thou art thou, my best thought by day, by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my. Thou my wisdom, 
So we need four teams up here that will serve the communion. As you know now, we are not choosing people ahead of time. So if this is something, maybe it's your first time, it'd be great. Come on up. You hold the tray of bread and say, this is Jesus' body broken for you. You hold the tray with the juice in it, and this is his blood shed for you. But come on up, teams, and, and get this populated so we can serve each other. And also, if we had a person on either side that would pray with folks, that'd be great. This idea of communion, you hear what the word is, the root in there. It's commune, as in community, doing things together, working as one out of many. And I think that all these issues that we've been studying and considering from the Sermon on the Mount require the many to constantly be saying, what are we doing with this? But this is a specific thing. Never believe for one minute that Jesus was going to come and just say, oh, I just want to have a relationship with you. I, do. I don't have any piety acts. I have nothing.